Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com, and it features interviews and stories about and related to music. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. My name is Eric Kaur, and I'm interviewing James Tracy today. We actually met when he was in a band called Family Home Evenings and the Space Masons, and he's gone from that to being an author. He's written Molotov Mao's Sparks and Codes, The Military Draft Handbook, The Civil Disobedience Handbook, and his most recent work is Hillbilly Nationals, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power, Community Organizing in Radical Times. And that was written in conjunction with Amy Sonny and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Amy Sonny was a co-author, and Roxanne wrote a really great foreword. Okay, okay, cool, cool. So welcome to Music Life Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. And so we met back when you were still a musician, which apparently you abandoned that at a certain point. Yeah, I've been I, I abandoned being a mu- musician just just to write. I think that um, my musicality was offensive even to the punk rock ears, um, <laughs> and you know people would always come up to me after shows and say, "I really like your lyrics," which means that they don't like anything else usually. <laughs> you know, and, and given that given that we usually had to get it had. In Space Masons, when we would actually write our lyrics out and give the, you know give them out to the audience members, there's probably no way that you could actually hear what we were saying. Um, I fi- figured I should pro- probably try to uh, stick to what I was good at. Although um, the other folks in Space Masons were fantastic uh, musicians. So did you you wrote all the lyrics then, and pretty much except for like one or two, one or two songs that our guitarist Ame uh, uh, wrote. Uh, you know, I, I probably should have just been there, been there, lyricist, and let some let somebody else do the do the singing. Okay, kind of like Cream. Yeah, so I or think they I had think, a beatnik poet who was doing their their lyric writing, and in Grateful Dead had had somebody right, you know, had their own lyricist. Jerry. Could be they had, a, I think they had everything though. Yeah, I mean they had an entourage that could have done anything for them. So they had their own city, pretty much, yeah, pretty so. much a traveling city. Yeah, yeah. They were like Sims everywhere they went, basically. For sure. So, so, so in, in a sense, it was kind of an inspiration, I guess, that got you writing based on the lack of singing, or yeah, lack of singing, lack of being able to remember actual notes and chords and things like that. But uh, you know, punk rock, uh, underground music, new wave, all of that. I mean, those things really shaped, you know. Shape shaped my politics, shaped ideas that I had, you know, listening to the Minutemen and the Clash in the 80s, things like that. Um, and it was always the lyrics, it was always the words that, you know, that really sparked my imagination and, you know, I've made me want to go find out what they were talking about, what it was these Sandinista things. That... Back in the day, I remember you used to, to put together, when you do shows, you put together benefits and even then, you were doing really socially conscious stuff. You were organizing even back then, some weren't you? Yeah, I was doing a lot of tenant organizing. We were, I was part of a group called Eviction Defense Network. We were the type of group that I don't know if organizing was exactly what you could call us in the beginning. We were more like that if we found out that somebody was evicting your grandmother, we would go to that somebody's mansion or their uh, small business or their their lawyer's office and do sit-ins or picket lines or whatnot. Uh, we moved on to organizing late, you know, later. But as far as the benefits go, I think that back in those days, I was the guy that all the bands used to screen their calls from because they knew if they if I was calling, they they knew that I was going to ask them to play for free, right? You know, so <laughs> it was always like you know, free Mumio or some you know some tenant defense uh, group or or whatnot. Um, 
You know, I think I had a really bad reputation as the nice guy who always wanted you to play for free. Uh, I know that uh, I, I know that a lot of people probably started to avoid me after a while, but we put on some really great shows. I remember they were a lot of fun, and I, I've always I've always liked playing Benefits the best. I mean, we still Gunpowder today. That's one of our favorite things to do, mainly partially because it's nice to know that we could be doing something good with our music, but also it's a chance to reach people we might not have been able to reach out to before either. Yeah, definitely. And those those times, I mean, there were so many. San Francisco just had such a wonderful underground music scene in the 90s you know i mean that that had had bands that had opinions about stuff you know yeah. uh, you know your you know eric core your so, your solo act you know we oftentimes would pair you with a hip-hop band i remember i uh you played at the casanova lounge with my co-workers band that was a reggae and it worked yeah. right you know it was very much the spirit of the times that music could kind of transgress a lot of the a lot of the the boundaries, you know, racial and class boundaries that that we have set up here. And it was a time of riot girls, you know, where women were really claiming a space up at the mic and on the guitar. It was, you know, it was a really, you know, it was a really fantastic time to be involved with uh, with underground music. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot. Of, there was a lot going on and yeah. a lot of creativity. De- um, def- definitely unfortunately so many of those bands aren't even around anymore you know a lot of those people aren't even around anymore yeah so it's nice as a lot of survivors are doing good things though yeah definitely uh definitely we uh we all jumped in the car and went down and saw the pansy division reunion show in la the other uh the other week and that that was that was a blast felt like we were 23 again so <laughs> that was a while ago yeah that was that was a reunion fun yeah, for sure. It was really, um, it was, it was really, it was really good. And when you think of that, I mean that that band was was out there breaking barriers, you know, and uh, you know, a great personal risk to themselves touring the Nebraska and the South and just about any anybody really, you know, you know, re, you know, really putting out kind of a pro queer but also pro progressive uh, message message out and i i like to think of pansy division as one of those uh, one of those bands that, you know a lot of people just think that hey they're a punk rock uh, i mean a pop punk band that just happens to have funny gay lyrics but when you really look at what their project was it was actually about bringing politics way outside of the comfort zone mm-hmm. right you know when you look look where they where they toured and who they toured with and things like that so you know I think that they uh, they broke a lot of, they broke a lot of ground for uh, for uh, you know a lot a lot of ideas you know I'm sure that there's uh, th- there's people that probably feel like um, you know just like you or I our generation might have thought that the Minutemen saved our lives I'm sure that there's a lot of adults now that feel like Pansy Division saved their lives. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's voices we take for granted in the Bay Area that people often don't hear outside of the Bay Area. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And Tribe Eight. You know, fan- fantastic. You know, stay pressed. Uh, the whole Star Cleaners scene, all of the, all of those. You know, it was a, you know, it was it was definitely definitely a good time right before the dot com boom. Oh hit. yeah, <laughs> so. do you remember there was a place uh, in the mission? I think with the commotion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They, they had one door. I think yeah. that was their issue. It was one door with a very long hallway, and they couldn't meet any fire code anywhere. So every show was this kind of a secret show. Uh, yeah, the the secret non non secret show. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, they're right on Sixteenth Street. You had, um, you know, Peter Plate, the great spoken word artist, author, uh, was you know would always take the mic there. Bedlam Rovers, uh, remember seeing the coup there in an early early oh, wow. incarnation. Um, oh, the Looters, of course. You know, and that that was that was one of those places. It was dangerous because it almost made you feel like. Music alone could change the world, which we know that it actually can't. Like you know, yeah. I mean, it can be part of changing the world, but can't can't be the only thing. But you go there, and you thought that the revolution was happening on Saturday, no matter how hungover you were, right? <laughs> you know, because that the music and that culture was just so uh, so powerful. Yeah, I remember. Uh, and there was a place played across the street once. We did a, an IWW benefit. To support uh, the lusty lady, they were trying to organize a union, yeah. and we, so we did a benefit just down the street from there. And but it was fun because there were all these not even non-conventional venues mm-hmm. that were doing things. 
Absolutely. You see with the space wars of the Bay Area, um, those options for just kind of having off-the-grid culture of shrinking and shrinking, right? Because all of those places where people used to fit fit in the crevices of society have just really, you know, really dried up. Yeah, because the cost of real estate. I mean, it was possible for people like you and I, you know, coming up in in those times, you know, being uh, people in our in our twenties and the nineties to like, you know, be of modest means and work part time and learn how to do something well. You know, you could go to school, you could become an activist, you could become a writer or a musician, uh, because you didn't have to work sixty or eighty hours a week like a lot of lot of people. Um, that come to to enjoy the dream of San Francisco now. It's amazing that any type of culture that's interesting actually gets gets produced, and it still does. You know, it's uh, but but it's a lot lot more of a struggle. You know? Yeah, I think it's a huge struggle these days for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, just because I mean, people are just struggling to get their basic needs met. Absolutely. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned something before, and I, I wanted to to point that out too. Is when you would do shows, and it's one thing I, I, I missed about when I used to go play L.A. When I'd play L.A., I'd get booked with any kind of band under the sun. I mean, it could be anything from a bossa nova band or a metal band to a punk band. And But you had that, that way of kind of making things work like that up here, too, and I miss that. It's, a lot of shows you go to nowadays, it's every band's going to sound like this. Yeah. There's going to be one box, everybody fits that box, and that's what we're here to see. And yeah, it's really, it's it's a really boring way way to to do things, you know. To and I think that with music, we have the opportunity to uh, go to to cross boundaries, you mm-hmm. know. We, uh, you know, having um, having the hip hop and the punk rock uh, crews having to co- come together and listen to each other, right? Uh, having the having the folk singer and having the poet, you know, that was the club commotion. Yeah. Uh, way of way of doing things that was the rock against racism way of doing things uh and everything and you know i personally like it a lot of, you know a lot of people would rather just go to go to a show and have ever you know have a straight punk straight hip-hop straight chamber music or yeah. whatever you know and that you know that, that gets really boring to, boring to me yeah the last show i went to that was like that i played a show for food not bombs at the the band shelter in Golden Gate Park. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was the coup was playing, yeah. uh, the White Trash Debutantes mm-hmm. I played. But just this whole hodgepodge of music and it was really fun because it was more interesting. Yeah, soup stock. I mean, that, That's what it was, yeah. Yeah, the soup soup stock and that was you know, those things were such a pain in the ass to have to produce and there was I mean, you know, Every form of drama and addiction, you know, <laughs> was thrown in that thrown in that that soup, and you know, people people, you know, it's like this is a you know basically like a hippie concert, and people would come with their with their bouncers, you know. There's this this band called Sunfur that was kind of like this hippie jam band, and you know. They they felt like they didn't get enough time and you know so they had their bouncer and their agent try to beat me up behind there you know, but wait, 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 and, hippies have bouncers. Yeah, it was just this really weird, uh, you know, just this really weird annual festival. But I actually kind of miss it because one of the one of the great things about Soupstock is that there's all this chaos going on behind the scenes, you know, just everything going going wrong, but. You couldn't really see it outside. Outside, it was just a nice. It was it was a, just a nice after afternoon in the park, providing that the the cops didn't show up to you know bust food not bombs for illegal soup distribution. That's one of the reasons I stopped booking shows because I I couldn't. The behind the scenes is what drove me crazy. Yeah, and and it really was. Is I used to I did uh, Oakland's Gay Pride the rock stage for a bunch of years and oh my god the the, the behind the scenes was always amazing. But yeah. people on the front lines are always like, "Oh, that was great! I had so much fun!" And that's what it was about. But it was—it's it, hard. Yeah. People have no idea how much work goes into that stuff. Definitely. That was one of the things I, I always liked because you always had a way of, of making things feel really inclusive. And that's one thing that I, I, I see that's kind of that's translated into your writing. Thinking about the uh, Civil Disobedience Handbook is the way you wrote that book is a lot of my experience in doing either community work or working with different groups is there's a lot of agendas happening simultaneously. Sometimes some of the agendas even coincide with the primary agenda. There's a lot of egos and then there's a lot of idealism that doesn't include people. 
Absolutely. I think that's idealism that doesn't include people. I mean, that's, that is such a, um, a monumental piece of today's activism scene and it has to go. Right. Yeah. You know, the idea that one, you know, one group that sees itself as part of the left or part of the anarchist scene or part of the socialist scene or uh, progressives or just generally rebellious people, one little group has all the answers. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and, and that any type of dialogue around, you know, that that might, you know, threaten that purity is, is dangerous. I and mean, you saw a lot of that in the 90s, IWW, you know. Oh, yeah. Would, uh, you know, people would take take their very best ideas and their best sense of self and destroy them through this really, really rigid way of operating. Yeah. And, I, I mean, I do, I, I don't believe in being, when it comes to politics and writing, I don't believe in being loosey-goosey, right? I believe in goals. I believe in tactics. I believe in strategy. I believe in having a plan. But... I don't, be, uh, you know, I don't believe in being so rigid that you can't consider new ideas, and that you can't consider the fact that maybe somebody else is right, or if they if they're wrong, they may be uh, wrong for all the right reasons. You know, I, I definitely consider myself to be part of the left, whatever that means, but you know, definitely cannot stand at this like just, you know, we have we have the correct line mentality that. Isn't just the people that we that we stereotype as as having that mentality. This you know the various socialist parties that have their little newspapers. It's everybody does it, you know. And it's you know we really have we really have to get back to the art of having a of having a dialogue of having a disciplined dialogue, right? But but creating a space where people people can uh, can throw what they think they know into the in you know into the pool of ideas, and so we can we can figure things out. Because I guarantee you that if uh, any of these, you know, predetermined ideologies were as wonderful as their proponents said, we would be a lot, we 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 would be a lot further along towards, you know, we wouldn't have a democratic president who thinks that it's okay to to send drones uh, drones out to kill villages in the in the Middle East, right? We wouldn't have that. We'd be a lot further along. What that looks like, I don't know. You know, yeah. and there's such wonder, you know, there's there are really wonderful traditions out of all the, you know. You know, in the in people's movements and stuff like that, but we, you know, we have to be able to really like, identify and take the best and just leave the rest and be humble enough to know when um, when our stuff just isn't working anymore. Well, that's like when I was with the IWW. I really there was a point where I felt like I was more part of a historical group mm-hmm. where we were just getting together occasionally to revel in the glory of a past and talk about grand ideas. And go away, and then we do nothing. At least that's what mm-hmm. it started to feel like at a certain point. And then, I, ironically, when I went back to school, I was in a history class, an American history class, and the professor I remember said, "And then there was this group called the Industrial Workers of the World that existed a very long time ago, but has been completely defu- defunct for decades." And I made the mistake of raising my hand and saying, "Well, actually, not a good idea." Especially a retiring tenured professor. Right. Well, actually, I was a member of the. I- no, they don't exist, and we went back. But it was, but you know, it really is. I mean, there's a lot of these groups that they. There's this I, this clinging on to this little piece of something, and and there's so much fragmentation. Well, if you look, if you look at the history of the industrial workers of the world, I mean, if you talk about a case study of a, of something that happened a hundred years ago, that actually has a lot of relevance mm-hmm. if people who are inspired by that by those traditions also have the fortitude and the courage to adapt to the days that we live in because i, I the the world that the iww uh in its heyday organizes is very different yeah. the economy you know there were gigantic warehouse jobs and you know, there were people. People actually identified as working class and they use a code word like middle class or the ninety nine percent or the rainbow. It was just you know, we're working class people, right? Yeah. But there's certain things about the industrial workers of the world, you know, about their legacy that's completely relevant to this day. You know, how do you run a world? How do you run a workplace with as little hierarchy as possible? I mean, that's that's a goal, right? That's something that oh. would be really inspiring. Yeah. They were the they weren't perfect at it, but they were one of the only radical organizations, let alone labor unions, that took race seriously. 
at the time that right you know actually racism in the united states is a is a horrid putrid thing and is and we don't have to just wait till after the revolution like a lot of the socialist parties were talking about there's so much about that about that time that that's relevant but you can't mechanically apply it just like you can't living here in oakland it's you know it's very right to be inspired by all the wonderful things that happened like the black panther party and um, the branches of the students for democratic society all of these things are you know uh you know, are are wonderful, but if you try to mechanically take take that inspiration without updating it and without talking about the conditions that we actually live in now, you know, you are just going to become a historical society. Yeah, there was a IWW job shop in Berkeley for a while, printing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they still exist, but they were they were kind of a model. I think there were three people that that the owner operated ran it, and yeah, I think I remember that. A long time. I think it was by the Ashby Bart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, which I guess is yeah. we're, we're getting into history again. Yeah. So maybe maybe the professor's right at this point. I don't know, but yeah. but yeah. No, I, I think it's it's definitely. I mean, it's it's, and I, I do see so many situations where worker-run businesses would make more sense. Yet people become entrenched in the idea of okay, this is the way unions are, and mm-hmm. and this is the way we do things, and it does seem people get really almost married to ideas. Absolutely. I mean, there's that, say, I forget who said it. It was on some, you know, some some post poster I saw that was, do you have ideas or do ideas have you? And I think it's a good idea to have ideas and that's a bad idea for, for the, to let, let ideas have you because that's, that's, um, you know, that's a one way trick, uh, ticket down to Jonestown as far as I'm concerned. But I was talking to a guy who was involved with one of the Occupy branches locally here, and it was interesting because he was really committed to it. I forget it was whether it was a, a Marxist ideal or what, but it was just he would he was so committed to a certain path. And we were talking about, it and I said, "Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? no, no, no? This is the way it is. This is the way. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you know this is the way it is? Have you applied it? Have you tried it? Is it working? Well, no, I just and it's." But I, I think it's it's also a fear of having these conversations that people have sometimes yeah. too. I mean, we on the left aren't really good at having conversations. We're really good at polemics. Yeah. You know? I mean, if you look look just you know just back last November, this this is the cycle that happens every time in the American left every four years. So every four years, because the the left and all of its various uh, parts of the family tree. Don't doesn't actually have strategic discussions about what to do with the um, with the actual system that we live under now. Whether you know some well-known writer or five will write something and say, "Hey, you know, I hate the Democratic Party, but we really all need to shut up and just go vote for him, right? Uh, because the you know because the op- the options are so horrible, right? Vote for Obama because Romney is going to be so horrible. A lot of my friends wrote wrote these essays. Mm-hmm. Really good thinkers like Rebecca Solnit and Bill Fletcher. And then somebody else comes and does a polemic against them, saying you're nothing but a sold out Democratic Party loving. Uh, you know, if they really want to get creative, they'll call it you know petty bourgeois social democrat. All the polemics and the name calling, but where does where does the conversation about strategy happen? Happen to me, I think that if you know we're going to as progressives as leftists, if we're going to break with the Democratic Party, that's an infrastructure question, right? You can't just you know if people say, hey, you know, I'm sticking with these with these turkeys because at least we'll know we'll have some uh, some freedom of choice, and uh, you know, and and parts of our lives will be less miserable. That's completely valid, right? For the, you know, because it's an impact someone's everyday life. But then to say, okay, well. We're not going to have this conversation for another four years, and we let the the uh, the one percent become more powerful. We've let the war machine get more entrenched and more part of our every everyday everyday lives uh, because we were failing to build alternatives to the two party system. Right? It's really about well, if you want to if you want to break with the two party system, it's about building the alternatives so people actually have have a chance. Now, it's not about uh, put, putting your finger up in somebody's face or you're getting up on Facebook and talking a lot of shit. Yeah, <laughs> it made me think of a lot of things we were talking there. One is is I think that the left doesn't hold the Democrats accountable the way the more right wing groups hold the Republicans accountable either. You know, there, there's 
you know, the labor unions, the labor movement, all these movements that have a lot of people, have a lot of power, have a lot of investment, simply do not hold the, the, the Democrats accountable. I mean, even didn't Obama just had somebody connected with Walmart that he put in a, in a major position? Yeah. Was, where, were the, where were the unions screaming about that? And I'm talking to someone who is very involved in unions. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely repulsed by that. Ab- ab- absolutely. I think that, um, you know, I mean, we could get into unions for the next next five hours. Yeah. I believe that they're extremely important and they'll be more more, effect- more effective uh, in direct proportion to their independence from, from, from party politics. Mm-hmm. But that also means that, you know, till we get to the point where we're able to do the great fabled general strike it also means uh, directly dealing with the world that we actually actually live in and doing the things like you know if somebody on your city council is crap you know put somebody else on you know? and that's and there are two models i've been seeing with the unions lately which and i won't tangent too much here but i mean there is there's still a lot of the big unions are doing the big political organizing doing externally and wasting the resources of the membership yeah but then groups like uniteHere.org are doing amazing work. Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, there are people that are actually taking that on and, and, and changing the, the local politics, yeah. which is good. When we talk about the labor movement, like, you know, I think like you suggested, you're talking about, well, what part of the labor movement? Right. It's very, you know, yeah. when we talk about you know, self-interest, well, self-interest has like 10 different layers when you talk about a labor, um, you know, a labor organization or a community organization. It's really complicated, but I don't think that we should just see out of trying to be purist and only wanting to work with, with people that have the best possible politics. Um, I don't think that we should just cede, cede that territory to the center. Right, I just, but we have to propose ideas from the left in ways that actually pe- people listen, right? right? Because you know, I, I again, I forget who said this, but I don't think that the left has any problem with attracting people to it, right? You know, there's, you know, whether labor unions, community groups, uh, social movements attract people in the th- in you know in the hundreds of thousands sometimes, but it's the keeping them part, you know, that yeah. we have to worry about, you know. And that's uh, that's where that's that's where the communication come comes in. That's where the patience uh, comes in, right? And really figuring out a ways to you know build organizations that everyday people, if uh, faced with the choice of coming to a meeting to f- to figure out how to change the world, or um, watching a- American Idol, well, they'll say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna DVR American Idol and watch it later. And then go, you know, go and figure out how to change the world with my co coworkers. Right? Yeah, a lot of it's cultural, right? You know, we can be really, really elitist. You know, you know, we need we need to make a space for people who uh, who watch American Idol, right? You know, and the amount of elite cultural elitism that we have in the left, really, you know, that that really has to go because that's when we really start answering the question of how do we keep people. Yeah. Well, I think you brought up a really good point, too, about communication is, and I think Saul Alinsky actually addressed this, what he talked about is one of the challenges of the left was only talking to the left, but never talking to the center. And, and he, I remember him talking about is, uh, and I think I'm, again, I'm paraphrasing because I think it was Saul Alinsky, but it, just talking about the importance of creating a message broad enough to actually engage people instead of rigid enough to push people away. Yeah, and I think that I mean that's that's the real challenge of building politics that are relevant to this this time because the left has been really bad historically, right? Yeah. At thinking about one thing uh, uh, more than one thing at once, right? So when you know in the '30s when it was all about class, then uh, oftentimes issue you know very real issues around race gender sexuality were just seen as antagonistic to the great project of emancipating the working class right we saw that in the 30s and the in the 40s and th- things like that and then when the new left came up and started to recognize the role of ra- of race and class and sexuality then talking about class became a no no right and we really need to build be able to build this broadly participatory movement that's not stupid, right? Yeah. That that re, that doesn't reduce people down to a um, 
into a one-dimensional character, right? Um, that recognizes that people's lives lives are complicated and multi-layered, and they have multiple concerns and multiple self-interests. Yeah, I was having this discussion with somebody recently about kind of the one-upsmanship in the left of, well, my group is more oppressed than your group. Oh, wait, well, if I pull this out, then I have this oppression. But then it becomes part of a hegemonic system where everybody's just helping keeping everybody else down. Well, there's, you know, there's a left wing and a right wing of identity politics. Yeah. You know, in our book, Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels and Black Power, I think we talk about the left wing of it, of people that organize their own community, at, you know, their own ethnic community, but actively sought the, uh, the alliances with other communities because they had a, had a class out outlook and they worked with the students because eventually they had a mass outlook mm-hmm. right you know but they had to start somewhere so that's the left wing of identity politics which is actually really healthy i think chacha jimenez from the young lords in our book really talks about that hey, there's nothing wrong with having pride in in your in your culture in your community in your history but it has to go somewhere yeah right and the the right wing of identity politics is you know where you you see the growth of the Willie Browns of the world, right? You know, and uh, able to use a lot of the rhetoric of civil rights movements and human rights movements, but really just to reinforce, uh, you know, the same old, you know, same old corporate power that's been oppressing people for 500 years on this continent. And I guess this is a nice segue into the book. Yeah. Your current book, because one of the things that I found really profound about your book was I, I felt like, you had unlocked a piece of history that was intentionally being hidden. It really felt like I was getting to look through a tr- some kind of treasure box of history. It made sense to me. It was beautiful to see it unfolding in your book. And I felt, why hasn't this been brought out? Why wasn't this discussion out there? And what drew you to this? What was the spark that actually inspired you to get into this well, book? You know, doing organizing uh, really was the spark the actual spark for me I, and my co-author's spark was uh, was similar but different we were both doing political work in our in in different ways uh, a guy named Malik Rahim who was in the New Orleans Black Panther Party who lived in San Francisco for a while told me about this group called the Young Patriots Organization and there were kids that had Confederate flags on their uniforms that would run armed security for the Black Panther Party and he said yeah I used to kind of hate white people or at least struggle with it but once I saw these kids with the Confederate flag running armed security for Fred Hampton I thought if there was hope for them there's hope for the rest of y'all right and can you explain a little bit about who the some of these people are as we talk about this yeah. as well so the uh, the young patriots organization were a group that came out of a neighborhood uh, called uptown otherwise known as hillbilly harlem or hillbilly heaven in chicago so this is where uh, where poor white people came when they migrated north looking for work uh there was a group called jobs or income now community union operating that was a hybrid of uh Students from Students for Democratic Society and neighbors of of Uptown that were wor- organizing around tenant rights, uh, around well, you know, welfare conditions, around housing con- housing conditions, but also actively trying to build up a kind of a poor white arc of the rainbow. Um, one of the most identifiable characters from Join was a wonderful woman named Peggy Terry, who was two generations into the coup. Her family was two generations into the clan, but she split and started working around civil rights uh, issues uh, through a multi-year process of finding out where her, what she really b- believed in and how she wanted to act. So the Young Patriots organization, the people who used the Confederate flag on their uniforms but wanted to use it in an anti-racist way, if you can imagine this, uh, they were the police brutality wing of JOIN. And they joined with the Black Panther Party and the Puerto Rican Young Lords and the original Rainbow Coalition. They didn't call themselves the original Rainbow Coalition at the time. They just called it the Rainbow Coalition. But I put the word in original because it had nothing to do with Jesse Jackson's uh, Mm -hmm. stuff. It was an attempt at building and modeling the type of organization that could really break the color barrier and get people to start working with each other in probably the most segregated northern city. I know a lot of other cities might uh, might also be qualified as the most segregated northern city. At Chicago's the time. pretty segregated. I I grew up north of there, and it's yeah. So they've worked together on many you know many different things, but unfortunately, 
I believe were probably crushed most by the weight of, of uh, COINTELPRO, of the government's crackdown on radicals at the time, which gets to one of the many reasons why this was hidden history. One is because not a lot of people wanted to talk about it because of the scars of the repression. You're talking about people that as soon as they started reaching across the color line, as soon as they started crossing neighborhoods and getting to know one another, uh, they witnessed one of their heroes, Fred Hampton of the Black Panther Party, you know, murdered in his bed. And, you know, many, many of them were chased all across the country uh, by, by the FBI. So a lot of people just didn't want to share their own story. Other reasons why these stories are so um, so buried, I believe that a lot of the people that in the academy had a hard time figuring out what to do with a bunch of uh, anti-racist, uh, hillbilly-descended kids that used the Confederate flag on their uniforms but still claimed an anti-racist uh, mantle. Can you explain exactly what they they wanted the flag to represent to them, too? Because I think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, page two of one of their newspapers said, The South will rise again, but this time in solidarity with our black, brown, red, yellow brothers and sisters. And I think that they really, they really wanted to reclaim Southern culture mm-hmm. and the rebelliousness of it and, um, you know, aspects that they were quite comfortable with, but redefine it and, and set it in a, in a new direction. I don't think that conf- sewing the Confederate flag on your uniform was probably the best idea in the world. There was another group called Southern Student Organizing Committee that probably d- did the same thing, but in a in a little smarter way where they transposed as a white hand and a black hand, um, shaking hands over the Confederate flag. Oh, that's a cool um, symbol. Probably a little smarter way if you yeah. want to play with that fire. That's probably, little, probably <laughs> so. It's much better symbolism than just the flag by itself. But you but. have to understand where it came from, yeah. right? You know, it came from it came from a uh, from having a strategy, from having a theory about reaching your own and taking responsibility for reaching your people and bringing bringing them into a point of solidarity uh, with others. It also came from also I think. Uh, you know, I can't prove this, but from a lot of the interviews, I've got kind of a good stiff middle finger to a lot of the student left. Or like, ah, mm-hmm. we're going to really, you know, piss off these these politically correct kids, right? You know, there's a little bit of that there, too. Well, I think you brought up a good point about the academy, too, because I think the academy w- would want to do, well, let's just focus on race, or let's just focus on class, or let's, there's this tendency of trying to pigeonhole things, categorize things, and kind of clean it up. Yeah. And this was a messy, there was a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, messy, you know, it was imperfect people in an imperfect uh, movement, but I think that they really set an example of what could be possible if groups like the original Rainbow Coalition could get that far, right? You know, what could happen if there were deep, you know, deeper rooted, long lasting multi year projects around, around this? We might not even have a Tea Party, right? Yeah. You know, who knows? But you can see why why the system thought they were a threat, and other groups that we talk about in in the book why they were seen they were seen as as a threat. Yeah, because this movement was spreading around the country too. Not gigantically. I mean, we talk about a very specific set of white working class people in the left, the ones that used kind of a Black Panther model mm-hmm. and worked in alliances with Panthers and other other radicals of, of color. Um, White working class people during that time also participated in many different ways than just just this model, right? I think that some of the criticism that's come out of our book, people didn't get get that nuance that we weren't trying to portray this as a universal thing, but a very speci- very specific example of one very specific model. Mm-hmm. But it was in Philadelphia, uh, Eugene, Oregon, South Bronx, uh, you know, Dallas, Texas. We don't even write about Dal- the Dallas, Texas experience in, in our book. I, I hope that um, Scott Crow has a great, great book about the Katrina experience called Black Flags and Windmills. I hope that he does it because as a kid, he actually went to one of the after school programs, oh, wow. you know, that was a, a Panther Patriot hybrid after school program in Dallas. So there's plenty more stories to be told, but it was, it did go. They tried to take it national, and it was it was shut down in Washington D.C. There was a a Patriots Party chapter that quickly changed its name just to the Committee to Defend the, the Panthers because they weren't actually getting to build up a base 
in poor white communities in in the D.C. area because they were constantly defending the Panthers from from repression from the FBI. So they just changed their name because it was uh, it was just a lot more honest and accurate description of what they were actually doing. One thing that I really would like to do some writing on in the future is like. How does this history of the the 60s and 70s of the COINTELPRO of the repression? How did how does this actually tell a story, and how is this, how are the from both the left and the right used to tell a story about today, right? About what's possible today, about what's right and wrong today. We have the you know Fox News boogeyman Bill Ayers, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, where Sarah Palin said Obama was just palling around with terrorists, right? The history of the weather underground. We have just two weeks ago, we have Asada Shakur, who was put on the FBI's most wanted list, terrorist list, after many decades of, you know, living in Cuba. You know, and I think that, you know, both of the left and the right still uses this this very painful time in, in American history to explain what's going on now and all the, you know, certainly I have a lot more, a lot more sympathy for the left explanation of mm-hmm. it, but I don't think it's a perfect explanation. I think there's a lot of holes in it as well. We see, you know, in Oakland, we've, you know, the Richard Aoki case that happened uh, a few months ago where it was found out that a member of the Black Panther Party, one of the most trusted ones and the uh, Asian member who went on to other organizations, seen as almost a lion in the movement, was probably working for the FBI the whole time. Oh, wow. And these are really, you know, very real scars. And I don't think that um, those of us who want to change the world today that still have that sense of optimism can... um, can do so unless there's some you know some real reckoning. Uh, my my friend Mark Rudd, who was in Weather Underground, wrote a fantastic book called Underground. It was explores the ideas of what what a Truth and Reconciliation Commission looked like around um, around the repression of of the new the new left, and it's an idea that I'm really fascinated with. I'm curious with the research that you've done because you did extensive research on this book. Do you feel it's changed you anyway, and if so, how? Well, it's changed me in one way is that I'm I'm way more reticent to take on a project where I have to do 70 oral histories <laughs> and everything. But uh, it changed me. I mean, first of all, it made me a, just much better of a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, working with my co-author, Amy Sony, was uh, a really transformative experience for me just as a writer. Because we've, we figured out a methodology of writing history in a way that was really engaging that carried you know carried beautiful sentences mm-hmm. in it um and still had all the proper footnotes so, so i learned a lot from amy just just as a writer and as a researcher like what does it take to say we really know something right that it, that it, that we've tested something out that we've checked as many of our sources as possible and when we say this is what is is that you know we're we're pretty certain that that that, that we're correct you know, so I think that really changed changed me. I think that in in a lot of ways, politically, it reinforced a lot of the things that I already that, that I that that I that I've always honored the need for um, generations of of activists to talk to 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 talk to the one that came before them in mm-hmm. an honest on, honest way and find out what worked and what didn't. You know, the need to you know. You know, to develop an analysis of how the system actually works—that's, you know, that's a living analysis, not a dogmatic one. Not just because Marx wrote it back in 1849 doesn't mean that it's absolutely 100% applicable towards towards today, but still not shying away from from having an analysis of how how systems work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I got a little little better at th- at thinking through those type of things. Yeah, the book is very well written. I mean, for people listening to this, it's it's an excellent read. It's it's a very easy read. It's very accessible. It's it's told in almost a conversational way. That's one of the things I liked about it is I really did feel connected to the people in there and their stories and their experience. So Yeah, that's that, that I guess mission accomplished, right? Yeah. I think that this the, you know, stories of, you know, Peggy Terry and Terry Doyle, uh, you know all these, all these wonderful, wonderful people that really, um, you know, put, you know, put their lives and their comfort, you know, on, you know, on the line for some something much bigger. I think that just knowing knowing their their stories is something that's that hopefully will inspire other people to do the same. Well, the book addresses another thing that's still a huge challenge today: is the 
there's so many people in the academy and universities that really, really, really want to do good things. And they go in there and they have all this optimism and all these ideas and they try and go to a community and the community has its own ideas and its own needs. And, and it really, I like that it kind of unpacked a lot of what those challenges that people go through. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I think that the key, there's a lot of ideas that you could pull out of the, the story, but you know, the key thing that is what qualifies one to work in coalition is building up your base, mm-hmm. right? So if you're a student, build up a base of students because that's what makes you actually useful towards a poor community, right? Is when, you know, when you have a group of group of pe- people that are willing w- willing to walk in solidarity with with another group of people. That's what makes you useful, right? It's not just individually showing up and saying, "Okay, I'm, I'm you know, I have the light of freedom here," you know, in the right. and and the correct line, but it's it's about building a base. It's about where, you know, uh, building up power wherever there's people, and that's if that's a student base, you know, uh, that great, you know, if that's you know William Upsky used to write about you know organizing cool rich kids to support poor people's movements, I think that 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 has a role. I really do think that historically, you know, many times when things have moved, it's they've moved from the bottom first, right? Mm-hmm. It's moved from you know from the poorest of the poor saying, okay, you know, we're you know, we're taking action. We can't have that. And it's a messy situation. It doesn't conform to anybody's ideology. You know, and there's plenty of exceptions when it's been students that have, have, have taken the first steps or, you know, unionized workers. It's not always the poorest of the poor, but I think that the, um, you know, poor people's movements are an essential part of, um, you know, of building up a, a unified you know, move, you know, movement to take back the country and to to build a better world. I can't see the ninety nine percent being successful without the direct participation of the people that are at the lowest rung of the ninety nine percent. Your book also, there's, uh, I like that. There's a lot about the, kind of the hard conversations that these groups have as they're trying to talk about issues around race and privilege and power and all those dynamics and. I think there's a lot of lessons for people today because those are still really hard conversations for people to have. Yeah. The problem is we don't even know how to have the conversation, right? We don't know how to have these conversations where you can bring up the very real issues around power, class, race, gender exclusion in a way that's going to keep people coming to the table, right? You know, that's people are going to come back and say, all right, we had this horribly uncomfortable conversation this transgressive conversation last night and i'm still going to be here on the picket line with you today we know how to point the fingers but we don't we we don't know how to after you know after the uncomfortable conversations uncomfortable necessary conversations are had we don't know how to follow it up and build community with one another in a way that can move things forward and that that's going to be a, a gigantic task of um you know of of re, you know of re, rebuilding uh you know viable social movements so from your experience as an organizer because you're currently working with uh jobs with justice in the san francisco community and trust is what are some of the things that you've seen today hands-on that really work for you when you're when you're trying to build community coalitions i really think that you know we can talk about how different the world is from other, you know, from from other points in history, but certain things work all the time. Face to face outreach works all the time. You know, it's hard. You get 80, 80 no's to twenty yeses. You know, uh, when you, when you're out there in a neighborhood talking with human beings. But I really feel like turning off the Facebook, oftentimes, turning off the. The social media and picking up a, a pen and a clipboard is just that's just the pillar of good organizing in any era really good leadership development and popular education so people can have a have a have a long long-range vision and also having the laboratory of working together with people that they might not have worked together worked with otherwise you know and really having the having that chance to um, to challenge the you know the racism and the classism that uh, that often divides divides the left uh, and everything by having some really conscious organizers that are able to to inspire people to think deeply right you know, so if some if somebody in your organization is great wonderful hardworking volunteer but they're anti-immigrant well how do you have that conversation 
right? How do you have the conversation that builds solidarity? I guarantee it's not by yelling at somebody and calling them a racist, right? It's about recognizing that maybe they're they're really, really piss poor afraid of um, losing their own job, right? Right, or or the chances of improving their own lives in this economy, and it's a lot easier to. Uh, it's a lot easier to blame the people who had to clean up the table after NAFTA was signed than the people that actually were sitting at the table signing that damn thing. Um, and you know, that's I, I think that's 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 a lot of the quieter things that we don't don't always think about uh, when we think about strategy or really the ways to uh, to build a movement. There was an author I forget her, her name. She wrote a, this idea, this concept of entering the inter, well, that this gray space. Mm-hmm. And how do we navigate that, and 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 accepting that we're navigate trying to navigate a place that is the unknown sometimes for people, yeah. and being willing to be uncomfortable, and being willing to be confused, and being willing to have conversations that we don't want to have. Ab- absolutely, because I mean, they're uncomfortable conversations, and they're always time consuming, right? Mm-hmm. They always cut into. Any number of things you'd rather be doing with your life, like reading a book or going to the movies or hanging out with your friends. These conversations are really, really hard to have, but they're worth they're they're worth it if people know how to have them. One day, I actually want to get to the point where we look at one another and say, "Okay, I don't understand the way you communicate. You park your car on the sidewalk. I don't like <laughs> I don't like any of your uh, any of your holidays. I hate your music. I don't agree with who you sleep in. But you know what?" That doesn't matter. That's my problem. I'm going. Yeah, you know, I'm going to stand up for your rights as a human, as, as a human being. Your rights for self de- self determination, regardless of, of of how much or how little I understand where you're coming from. I think when we get to when we get to that point, that's gonna that's that's gonna be a really uh, a really good day. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting a hankering for for soup stock again. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Some things are best best left as um, as, as the, sweet sweet old memories. Yeah. So, is there any project that you're not working on that you'd really like to be working on? That's a good question. I think you know I'm really lucky at this you know at this point in my life where, first of all, I have a job, right? You know that you know I don't I don't have to struggle with unemployment like so many people, but I also have a have a job that. Um, you know, allows me to think. It'd be a whole person. I work at Community Housing Partnership. We house homeless people. That's a fantastic place to be. And I'm working on the books I want to work on. At some point, I would like to write a gigantic, uh, a gigantic rock opera one day. You know, and get together with some musicians. I have a, I have a big uh, soft spot for rock operas, and I would love to, would love to, um, to write a rock opera one day. But other than that, I think I'm pretty happy with the, how things are right now. Cool. Is there anything that you're currently working on, writing-wise? Yeah, I'm working on a book called um, Neighborhood Threats. It'll probably be out in 2014. And it's a, it's a look, it's a really positive book. It's about uh, pro- things that people are doing in the here and now in cities that, uh, sh- that have the seed of what a better world could look like. So we're looking at interesting, um, we're obviously I'm going to be writing a lot about alliance building, mm-hmm. but also uh, look at projects like the Community Land Trust about what housing looks like when it's taken out of the speculative market and run kind of in like housing syndicalism, run self-managed by the, by the tenants. Participatory budgeting, which isn't happening in Vallejo, uh, which is a great, great process where everyday people actually get to determine their own, their own city budgets or at least part of it. Vallejo is one of the cities that went bank. Isn't yeah. It? yeah, and so it's. I, I grew up in Vallejo mostly, okay. so uh, watching watching their participatory budget elections and their process going down there gave me a lot of hope for where I came from. Because as you know, if you turn on Channel Two, uh, any morning at six, it usually leads with something horrible that happened in Vallejo. You know, someone gets shot, right. someone gets robbed, crimes up, uh, and within that, this re- this really amazing group of of uh, of people have organized a process that's really bringing people across the neighborhoods together to think about what you know what's the infrastructure that needs to get built, how to make a safer city, how to how to bring more more opportunities and jobs there. Uh, so I'm you know I'm really excited about that, and so we'll be uh, you know we'll be looking at projects projects like that things you know th- but things that people are actually doing right now. You know, oftentimes we don't even look at. The positive stuff that, that that people are 
uh, people are doing. We just we just ignore it as being oh that's a that's a nice little project. That's just a nice little reform. But actually, some of the things that people are doing have have really a really deeply radical potential if it's if they if they're grown to scale. Well, that's cool because I think a lot of times people are afraid to to talk about that stuff because they want history to actually get a back lens on it first. So I think sometimes it takes more courage to do what you're doing there of actually just stepping in it and looking at it and yeah and just just see, seeing ways that people try to reclaim their dignity in the global economy. It's cool. So is there anything I haven't talked about that you really want to talk about? No, covered music, recovered books, you know. That feels like a good place to end cool. it on too. Let's I do like it. That. What about uh, where can we find your books? Oh well, that's important. Luckily, uh, you can find Hillbilly Nationalists, Urban Race Rebels, and Black Power almost anywhere where books are sold. It's published by Melville House, uh, mhpbooks.com. Uh, our publisher uh, will always sell the books on their website for pretty close to the Amazon price. So there is absolutely mm. no reason to go through Amazon, but you can also support your local bookstore. It's we're distributed by random house. It's really easy, you know, really super easy to find the other book that you mentioned, civil disobedience handbook is still in print by manic D press, uh, published uh, by Jen Joseph on Bernal Hill. Um, you know, the, the woman who gave me my my uh, my big break in the publishing world, um, and you know they're all very very easy to find. I always recommend always checking Powell's dot com because they are a union union bookstore mm-hmm. out of out of Portland, and they have a wonderful web, uh, website. So there's no 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 reason to go to Amazon dot com. If people want to get a hold of you. You have a website? Yes, uh, jamestracywords.com, but my personal email is actually right on, on the website. It's jamestracysf at gmail.com. Um, I should put a disclaimer that if you're looking for the James Tracy from Florida, for, uh, who's always <laughs> the, conspira- the conspiracy theory. Uh, I keep, uh, he's, he's a member of the Academy, isn't he? He is a member of the Academy. Probably not for much longer. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but he, was, he better hope he has tenure, but... I get these I get oh. these letters from people like you know when he started opening his mouth I got I got opened up my email I should have brought them on to, to read them they're really funny like half of them were like fuck you and my cousin my cousin of a cousin of a cousin died at Sandy Hook and how dare you deny this thing blah 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 and the other one was like you know what thank you for sticking it to the to those obama socialists that are trying to take our guns and you're welcome to come and it was like and i got this whole flood <laughs> they'll come to our town i got this whole flood of facebook requests all of like big white men with guns in their in the actually having having guns in their profile pictures uh, you know i was i was actually started i was get, i got a few crank calls people you know luckily that's died down a bit but you know well he he's gets in the news quite a bit though it's it's yeah, it's I almost mean, like you're yin and yang with each other. It's kind of yeah. amazing. Cause I really, I really wish that the press was was interested in uncovering the history of the Young Patriots Party and rising up angry and getting to the bottom, the the real story behind COINTELPRO than worrying about this jackass. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. For All right. Coming thanks. On here yeah, I'm looking forward to listen. It's a pleasure. All right. Battle drum.
is ours and ours and alone. The union makes us strong. We have laid the foundations, built it skyward, stone by stone. And the union makes us strong. It is ours not to slave in, but to master and to own. And the union makes us strong. They have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn. And the union makes us strong. But without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel will turn. And the union makes us strong. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. <laughs>